I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Today on Say It Forward, we welcome artist Kim McCarty to discover her extraordinary life at the center of the California art scene. Her compelling fluid figures painted in a large scale are in some of the most prestigious private collections and museums, including the Hammer Museum in L.A. and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Kim talks about the early life move with her sisters from Ohio to Switzerland, fueled by her father's ambition, to her young adult years creating the foundation that still shapes American contemporary art collections to this day. At 22, she married Michael McCarty, whose L.A. and New York restaurant, Michael's, helped put notable chefs like Nancy Silverton, Jonathan Waxman, and countless other top chefs in America on the map. This is one very cool but incredibly approachable couple who grow grapes for award-winning Pinot Noir on their home property just as a side hustle. Kim modestly describes herself as Michael's sidekick, but Kim's amazing art complements the delicious restaurant experience that her trailblazing entrepreneur husband brings to his guests every day. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Kim McCarty. Can you tell us, you know, where you're from what your early days were like, what the journey was early for you. I was born in Los Angeles, but when I was five years old, my father moved us outside of Geneva, Switzerland, in a little town called Conche, because he was was a chemical engineer. Couldn't really get things going in the States, and he started fooling around with a paint ingredient, and he was a great salesman, and he went to the Pentagon, and he didn't even have a total, you know, ingredient or whatever system for making this kind of textured spray paint that you put on buildings. He somehow was very, very clever, very dynamic man. And in the early 1960s, you know, he decided he wanted to go abroad to find a way to franchise it. So he moved all of us from Cheviot Hills, my two sisters and my mother and I, and my parents were originally from Youngstown, Ohio. We move into this house in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, in the 60s in Switzerland, it was like moving to another planet. Are it you was the baby? insane. It must have been insane, right? Are, are it you was the- very it was wild. And my dad shows up, you know, with a Cadillac going through the narrow streets. I went to Swiss schools right away, you know, little tiny Swiss schools. And we didn't speak the language. But it was, you know, it was a fascinating, fascinating journey. And that being said, of my two older sisters and myself, there was no TV. There was nothing for us to do. So we all learned to entertain ourselves by <laughs> making art, by, you know, for Christmas would come around and we'd make the decorations for the Christmas tree. You know, it was just beautiful, exotic, weird, depressing. It was everything. But I lived in Switzerland until I was um, with different places in between moving back to LA, then London. From sixth grade to 11th grade, I was in different schools, different countries. And not like us, how we treat our kids today, like with kid gloves, like, oh, honey, where do you want to go to school? Where can we put you to school? It was like, you're going to just go there and you survive, you know, you thrive. Do you remember it in a good way? You know, I, now I do. I, you know, now I'm so fortunate because, first of all, I speak French, which is a wonderful gift. I am um, fearless about traveling, you know, and I'm so glad that I had the experience of living in other countries. I, I love it. So, And I have very close, close friends. And it was a beautiful time to live in Europe. 
Did you end up becoming much closer to your sisters? Yes. Yeah. We're a very close, close bond. And, you were uh, like the three little musketeers we were, out there. <laughs> we were definitely the three musketeers. Unfortunately, one of my sisters is uh, seven years older. So when both my sisters and my other sister is four years older, when they went off to college, it was a big shock. Because first of all, my father was a big womanizer. And till this day, I mean, he is a wild man. We have man. that in common. <laughs> 93-year-old, good-looking. You know, his role models were at that stage was um, James. James Bond and Hugh Hefner. And that was my dad's world was, you know, but, you know, being an American in Switzerland, we had to be very quiet. It was all about looking good, acting good, being not heard, barely seen, because the Swiss were not thrilled with having Americans around. You know, you know, the Swiss at all. They're very, very private people. So did your dad get the paint business underway was that he what did he his... did he got his business underway he would like mix this paint you know we all were mixing the paint with him and he went with his secretary who then became his wife um swiss <laughs> german have we been living parallel lives you and i <laughs> she has the same father but oh my god maybe you're my sister <laughs> It's very possible. I've frequently said to my father, do I have siblings out there that we don't I know, know about? I know, Which, it's by like the that. way, I'm sure the answer is yes. We just don't know that it's yes. We could get one of those tests, you know, where they saliva stick <laughs> us and find that we've got 11 sisters in some other part of the country. I know. It is. Um, so definitely so. It all became about looking good and acting proper and all of that. So I moved, finally moved back to L.A., went from my boarding school in Switzerland where we were hippies, whatever, to moving back to Beverly High because my mom finally got divorced and she was going through a really tough time. And we moved to the smallest little house on the border of um, Beverly Hills so I could go to Beverly High. So I went to Beverly High School and left in the 12th grade, which was, you talk about foreign countries, that was the most foreign of any foreign country I lived in. What was it like for you? What was that transition? What was it was. It was wild because then, you know, I went from living in London, doing the Mary Quant, you know, with the wet look look and then to boarding school where it was like hippies and drugs. And, you know, everybody sends their kids to school, boarding school in Switzerland, thinking they're going to get a good education. Forget it. <laughs> Forget it. What was it <laughs> Not like? that it's fun. It's fun, but it's uh, especially at that time. Right. Yeah. You know, you are on your own. I mean, it was just. The early 70s was like you were just – they didn't know what to do with education. It was also the burst of the uh, change in music. and you The know, change in music, these, the drug you know, scene, the Vietnam drugs, War. So many kids, Peace too, love. Like Just tons of kids. Like a large, large population. Yes, of, it was a baby boom. Yeah. Yes, definitely the baby boom. So it was um, – and then coming to Beverly High where it was all about money and the kids were wearing Gucci and it was like car – it was like very – fascinating. But that all being said, that's why I always, always drew and painted because I always, it was the one connection. It was one thing that I owned was the doing artwork. It always became, and also traveling so much. And we were all kind of almost like army brats in a sense, even though we weren't in the army, but still it was like every year you were saying goodbye to people. And the way to hold on was to, to draw them and try to realize them. It sounds like you had a good upbringing, though, that yeah. you enjoyed it. I mean, I got to travel and see beautiful, beautiful things. Are you close to your siblings? We are so close. And do they, where do they live, the two girls? They both live here. One of my sisters is a singer-songwriter um, who um, was part of the uh, song Killing Me Softly. She, Killing uh, Me Softly. Yes, yes. So she co-wrote that and was the first one to perform that, and she still performs all over under Lori Lieberman. And my other sister has a store on um, Main Street in Santa Monica that's been there forever called Jadis, which is oh, an... Oh, I know that store. Yeah, yeah, a very interesting prop, pre-tech, very cool store that's been there for 
35, 38 years. So all three of you are entrepreneurs. That's a nice way to put it. Yes. We're it's all true. going for our artistic <laughs> paths. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Are either of your parents alive? My father is still alive. And my, yes, and my husband's mother and stepfather are still alive. Mm-hmm. And uh, Did yeah. your mom ever remarry? She did. She remarried. I mean, it was a tough. My poor mom was a beautiful woman. She married two very powerful men, very successful, who left her nothing. And it was a very, you know, tragic after 25 years with my father and then 32 years with my very, very successful stepfather. It was like... And they both predeceased her. They both... Oh, no, your no, dad's no, alive. But, my they, dad's but alive, they were but divorced. Yes, yes. And the second one predeceased her? Yes. And didn't yes. leave her any anything? It's a long, tragic story. Oh, my goodness Yes, me. it's a sad... And now your mom has has passed away. Yes, yes. And my step, my mom, father's much younger wife passed away, which was very rude. And uh, <laughs> I took care of her. And then, you know, I've been taking care of a lot of a lot of parents. I'm telling you, you and I have been living these parallel lives. They say, you know, Hillary might say that it takes a village to take care of, you know, your no. children. It takes a country to take care of your parents. It really does. <laughs> that's so funny. Well, it really does. Kim, it, that's hysterical. <laughs> it is so lovely to hear you talk with your sisters. I was oh, around when yeah. your sister called that one time and they're they're just so we're like three little <laughs> you're like little girls in a way i know still... we we, have, we are arrested development girls yeah you are <laughs> we are you know we all i think that with our you know i think no matter what age you are when you get with your family you get to that same age back. group you go back and you stay keep your place where you're the eldest middle youngest you um you maintain that role so you you come to la you go to high school 11th and 12th grade mm-hmm. and then you go i went to university of colorado Boulder because I wanted a real American, you know, big experience. All I my wanted... sons went to Boulder. Oh, my God. They loved it there. Yeah. So, it, yes. And I loved it. It was so fun. I mean, it was great. I really wanted, after having had a very interesting growing up, but a very on-your-own exotic, you know, you took care of yourself and, you know, stay in hotels at 12 years old by yourself. I mean, it's so different than when we <laughs> raise. It was a different time then, too, but the mm-hmm. whole thing. And I was an art student there. And I before that, I was taking classes at Art Center College of Design when I was in high school. And I always knew I would go back to Art Center of College of Design. But I wanted those two years of just, you know, big America. I was a skier. And in my second year there, there I always saw this guy around who was like rebel rousing the whole university. And that was <laughs> Michael McCarty, this loud... Loud guy with this long hair, great looking, but he was teaching the only the first class there, uh, French cooking in French, and you got a degree in that. And all the cool kids were taking his class because it was an eight course class, and it was fun, and it was like just when the food people were starting getting interested in food and wine, but very, very at a very small level. I mean, it was just starting. Michael had been living and he had gone to school abroad in France and lived with this crazy French family in a decrepit chateau. How you know wealthy decrepit. <laughs> You know, it's like everything was crumbling, but they cooked all day. And uh, there was always a party, you know, in Brittany. And also, like, with his parents, every—there's always a reason—there's some French holiday with his parents who were not wealthy, but they always they always cooked and entertained. It was always, you know, have, yeah. a, have a party, have a party. And uh, so he went to France for that year, and then he came back, and then he went back to Cordon Bleu and got a, a degree at the hotel school— Cornell. That was all a new thing. So anyway, my one day my roommate from college, who actually is now an expert on Eastern affairs, she was with the uh, Obama and uh, Clinton, Gail Smith, and now runs the uh, Red mm-hmm. campaign. Yeah. Um, she said, well, this guy, Michael McCarty, 
he's got an extra place at his table, but you're not going to like him because he's so loud, but you know, you should come. And I said, well, okay. Cause my, my artist, <laughs> depressed artist boyfriend didn't show up and I was so depressed. <laughs> and I, I go to this meal and there's like, you know, 20 of the hippest kids and I'm a very shy girl. And Michael yells out to me, so Kay, you there, who's your main squeeze? And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's oh, so shit. <laughs> and then we went to Tulagi's, the hip place. And um, he asked me to dance and then I turn around and he's dancing with somebody else. And I just hated the guy. But then by chance, both of our families, were li- my mother was living in LA and his parents had just moved to work. His father worked for Pepperdine University and they just moved there. And I, we came back for Christmas and he kept wooing me with food. And before I knew it, he came back and opened up a restaurant in Evergreen, Colorado. And I was doing dishes back there and I was serving and I was like, what? What have I gotten together? You kind of tricked into this whole restaurant business. I got tricked into it young at 19, 20 years old. And I was like, you know, here I am, this shy person. And I'm just like, you know, and I've learned from being in Switzerland and from my family, you just serve people and shut up and just, you know, give them their plate of food. And you must have been quite taken with him. I was, but I was scared to death of him. Because, again, they were, loud. like, loud. And, and he's, he's the quietest. Big, he's big, too. He's big, and he's the quietest of four you boys. you talking about physically big? He's tall. tall? He's, he's not that big, but he has, he has a big girth, kind mm-hmm. of. And his family, I mean, his three brothers, you being a mother of four boys, can relate to this. I mean— So much testosterone. <laughs> You know, and they're big. And his mother had the mo- has the most testosterone. I mean, she is a party animal. Like she was always in the ocean, naked, and you know, like drinking. And it was like, oh my god! But you're not even supposed to like show your bra. I mean, it was like crazy. It was just wild. So then he decided he wanted to open a restaurant in Los Angeles. I wanted to come back to Art Center, College of Design. Were you married now? No, no, no. We were not. We were together for like ten years before we got married. So we came back and. Um, I started Art Center of Design in illustration. That was the only way my family would pay for me to do, my father to do anything in the arts because, you know, I had to have a career, which was good. I wanted a career, definitely. And at that point, there were very few women artists, very few. I mean, our role models were Georgia O'Keeffe and uh, Mary Cassatt. There was nobody. There were a few sculptors. Michael kept trying yeah. to open up his restaurant. He was 22, 24. Everybody thought he was nuts. At that point, being a chef was considered the worst job. You know, nobody did that. You know, restaurants were so uncool. He kept having a vision. Finally, he, after a year, I mean, two or three years of trying to find a location and him going around catering and we'd go to, you know, cater people's houses like at Michael Eisner. We did a clam bake there and he would do, you know, odd catering jobs. And I was working my butt off in design school. He finally found a banker who who was a amateur chef, and he uh, gave him the $150,000 loan to open up this restaurant. The, the guy was a banker mm-hmm. who liked cooking as well. Yeah, and he was the only one who believed this young kid had this vision for opening up a restaurant. So while I was at Art Center, Michael opened up this restaurant. And uh, again, I was 22, he was 25. And, and it was the, really the beginning of the whole California food it thing. It was. It and was 1979. Were, and you guys were right at the very beginning of it, doing it in L.A. The people who came through your kitchen as, as chef, sous chef. 
Yes, assistant. many. Jonathan Waxman, Nancy Silverton was our receptionist. Mark Peel was in the kitchen. Is that the same Michaels? It is the same today? Michaels in now. the same location. In the same location. So you scraped together enough money at that time to get this restaurant open, and it became the be all and end all. Yes, yeah, I remember it was when starting, it opened. It, it was, was like a, the start oh of the God. revolution. It was at the same time that. Calif- uh, Northern California was coming together with food. It was just when it was just starting, where you couldn't go anywhere and get a baby vegetable. Was that around the same, same, yes. same time as Chez Panisse? Yes. Yeah, Chez Panisse exactly. might have opened a year. It was about the same time. It and was. then two years, three years later, uh, Wolfgang Puck opened. Well, he had Ma Maison, and then a couple right. years later, he opened up Spago. Yeah. And it was just, just the beginning in Jeremiah. But then there were no restaurants outside in Los Angeles Everything was inside. It was all very dark. It was all like dominoes. It was the film business, so everybody wanted to be hidden. It was like speakeasy time. And all the restaurants were very French and French tuxedoed. And this was the first time that guys were wearing hip Ralph Lauren shirts with in khakis. And there was good art on the walls. And it was the blending of a lot of different senses coming together. When did you open in New we York? We opened in 1989. That was when the recession was full board in New York. It was a very dark time. We had no idea what was going to occur then. We were so naive when we opened up that restaurant. It was a spot that Michael had his eye on forever. This one location was used to be called the Italian Pavilion on 55th Street that we didn't even think about a cloakroom. And all I remember is I was, I had two little babies who were living in the flea bag hotel of the Shoreham. You couldn't even put your feet on the ground. And I would paint all night. Then I'd work during the day there and not having a co-room. And all these women, one day at lunchtime, there were – this is when all the women wore fur coats. And I I had no hangers and I was holding 20 fur coats and every fur coat, the name was Peggy in it. And everybody was yelling at me like, where's my goddamn fur coat? You know, you're just winging it. You're yeah. winging it. Yeah. And and it was a moment in time in New York where it became quickly like sort of the clubhouse of the media elite. Yes, yes. Especially and, for women. Especially yeah. for women. I think women felt very comfortable. It was when they were first recognized to be business women on their own. And uh, it became, yes. And, and you and Michael, I think created that comfort level amongst women because Michael is so such a big brother in a way and he's such a fan of women. He is. His mother is tough and as wild. Oh my god, she's wild. Yeah. She able to go I mean boundarylessness, if that's even a word. She kept those boys in line. And yeah. they're all very wonderful to women, respect women, yeah. respect people, yeah. which is a, a big, big thing. Yeah. Going back to California, 79, you've got this this really interesting location that has an outdoor garden. It's one of the first sort of, like you said, outside dining mm-hmm. experiences. I mean, what was, what was that like? It was just fascinating. Well, first of all, I was in a really intense program in design school, driving every day to Pasadena. It's a dichotomy of... You know, working mm-hmm. all, doing up all nighters with, you know, doing, ex, you know, exams, whatever you had to do for your crit. And then, Michael, we had a baker who was a maniac who would build, make, that's when desserts were like the big cakes that you had in the front when you walked in. And he would bring me home all my favorite desserts. While I was doing my all nighters, like there was, there's one called a petit vieille, which I love, which is the almond paste and like a uh, croissant p- oh. uh, pot pastry. <laughs> I have such a sweet tooth because growing up, my father would not let us have sweets. He would import all the American candy and would always say, save for dad. So, you know, you become like this abused child. All you want is sweets. So he would, and I put on like 20 pounds doing all these all-nighters, eating all these desserts. 
<laughs> and I mean, our food waste was, I mean, now forget it. You, you know, everything, everything is totally, you know, called for. But I was pretty involved in my own work at that point. So your your studio work really was just painting all night long, like making... Well, making... and then it was kind of more design advertising where you had to be on like, you know, a real schedule to sh- because that's how the advertising mm-hmm. world is. You're just always doing, you know, project, project, project. And up, being up all night is part of the norm. I mean, you're just, those yeah. crits are brutal. When I graduated, it's a four-year program, but I was always involved with a restaurant. That's that kind of business. Yeah. And I'm lucky on one hand... Because Michael let me be involved. There's some restaurateurs where they don't let, or some businesses, they don't let the women become involved. And I learned from a very early age, especially seeing what my mother and father went through, she could not be involved in his business. So hence, he had a, and my goal was, I'm always going to be involved in your business, and I'm going to be involved in my business. Yeah, yeah. People always say, what's a successful marriage? And I really do think a woman has to be, if they can, be involved in their business. Yeah. Well, I think that that's true, but I also think that women need to do something. No, you and know, you need your own thing, too. You need your own thing. You I have, think you, you know, need to work doubly hard. I think you have to do both. I, I yeah. Seriously, people always say to me, what is the key to successful? you got to you got to do both. You have to have your own thing. I think that it's really important to have your own thing if authentically you have your own thing because it's important to be authentic for your kids so that they see how an individual human being does their life. Absolutely. And to have your own passion. I mean, I mean and I'm lucky, you, you know, to have your own passion. Yeah. Well, both of the things that you're involved in are smack of creativity. Yes, yes. And so you're getting your your um, creativity, you know, bug filled in, in every part of your life. Yes, it's great. It's, yeah. it's true. I can be in isolation all day and then be with all the people I need to be with at night. And yeah. it's a truly a wonderful, wonderful gift and to the have failure biz- the failure rate in the restaurant business is crazy high. It's horrible. And the fact that you're 30 years in that business. 40. For- oh, my goodness. 40 years in the I business. Know. And still have one of the hottest restaurants in the city. And, and the re- same thing in New York. It's an amazing accomplishment. And reinventing it, too. Like, how does that work? How does it work? Well, fortunately, our son got involved because he couldn't stand the the music we were playing. (laughs) That thievery wasn't cutting it when we were trying to be hit. And so he got, you know, had to, and he just couldn't handle us trying to make changes that weren't, you know, you know when it's time and we to make some changes that need to be changed. You know, we th- we think as we get older that we know what's going on. And it was great to have his eye and bring in his friends and find Miles, our chef, who is incredible, Miles Thompson, who's a real artist. And uh, and we were game for it. You just need to find the person who will help direct you to that and be open to it. Yeah. I mean, life is being open to all these changes. That... Super cool that it's your son, too. Yes, he's really proud of him, super proud yeah. of him. Are both of your boys involved in the restaurant? We have a daughter. Oh, a daughter. A daughter Clancy. Uh, Clancy's involved... Um, she works for an advocacy group called Every Mother Counts. She does all the production for um, it's on maternal health. So she travels worldwide making all the films on maternal health worldwide. And she is training to be a nurse midwife, too. This is an organization with Christy Turlington, and it's really impressive. Yeah, it is. How did she get involved in that? Early on, she was into fashion, but she was always a studious religion major, too. And when she worked, when she went to Gallatin in New York, she... Worked in the fashion industry, but she really wanted more. It wasn't a, she needed more, a different thing else in her life too. So she, by chance, met Christy Turlington through a common photographer friend of ours that I grew up with in Geneva, a woman named Pamela Hansen, who's a wonderful editorial photographer. They were seated next to each other, and Clancy and Christy started talking. 
And Christy, who suffered very tough giving labor, and her mother is from El Salvador, they start talking about starting this organization. Of course, it's Christie's organization, but it's like they started working on this together, this advocacy group. And it's a beautiful thing because, as we know, maternal health is a huge, huge problem in the United States. I mean, she tells me stories you know, in Florida. And she just, Clancy just did a movie about the farm workers in Watsonville, you know, following those immigrants there and that are pregnant till nine months pricking strawberries and but how beautiful their life is and trailing one woman who came back as lived there, uh, became a doctor and came moved back there to help all the women mm-hmm. there. So since I want to have our listeners have an opportunity to understand what the work is that they do, can you give us a paragraph on exactly what they do? They partner with different organizations. Like in Haiti, they partner with a midwife organization. And that employment is so low in Haiti that they are considered in this one area, Southern Plateau and Hench, to be like the third largest employment, I mean, company. Because there are 30 midwives that are, or I don't know how many, are right. being trained in Tanzania there with the tribal women there. They organize with a um, midwife group there. They partner with them to give them money to help the women there deliver. The Maasai. The Maasai, yes. And one of the places that she was in, they go to Guatemala to help the indigenous. They partner with another organization there, the indigenous women. And to help them in giving birth? In maternal and to help them with little things, with medicine, sometimes with even getting solar Lighting, You know, they have no lighting. So these doctors work all night, but they are working in the dark. Wow. You know, and midwifery is is kind of the sometimes that's the only there's only maybe one midwife in these areas. And the track, you know, some of these people like when we're in Haiti, people travel for like two hours on a bicycle or they walk forever just to deliver and, you know, to have any kind of I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Farmer, who amazing, who was so um, involved with Haiti and poverty and medical. And he started the hospital there. And and if the woman dies giving childbirth, who's going to take care of these families? Right. Nobody. That's a profound thing to it's be doing. It's a wonderful, wonderful. I'm very, very proud of yeah. Clancy for the work she does. So you moved from Brentwood, where you last were in our story. I moved back story. to Michael's parents had built this tiny house on top of a mountain that they got this piece of property in Malibu since his father was in public relations at uh, Pepperdine University. And he got transferred to Colorado, so they had to move, pack up the house. But we were allowed to stay in the house. And since we could not pay any of our staff, they all lived in the house with us. So Jonathan Waxman, Sally Clark, who has the restaurant Clark's in London, Phil Reich, who was our wine guy, Ruth Weichel, she would always be coming and going. And everybody, it was like the house was disgustingly dirty. But you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't see dirt. (laughs) You You don't. don't see it. And everybody, I mean, everybody lived at our house. It was, this one day I will write the book. I mean, Everybody was there. And we would get up and we'd have to drive Jonathan Waxman to work and back. And oh my God. And it was, uh, but it was fun. Must have been great fun. It was a riot. Absolutely. So much riot. creativity in one place. Absolutely. At the same time. And Jerry Casale, who you just met, he used to hang out all the time with my other friend Luann. I mean, we were all this kind of part of the Venice Arts Group and. My husband went to school with Jerry. Oh my God. They go way back. They both went to Kent. So you, did you continue to live in that house? Is that the house that you developed? Yes. We uh, finally, about at that point, Mike, Michael and I finally got married because the doctors told me that I had 
endometriosis, which then you were not allowed to talk about. I mean, nobody, no women talked about endometriosis. It was like this silent disease that women just kept quiet about. But now you have people like Lena Dunham, all these women. Have Padma come out. Lakshmi. Yeah, Padma talks a lot mm. about it. And um, the doctor said, if you want to have a child, you've got to start right now. So we decided to get married. We have a huge, wild wedding. Wild. I mean, we had it. <laughs> Where was it? It was up at our house. And at that point, we were able to, we started, we kicked everybody out and we started to clean up the house. We had, we fixed it up. We decided that I would put my studio on the property. And on top of that, we would make a tennis court. So that's how we'd cantilever and make a tennis court. So we had the wedding on the tennis court. Everybody performed. Jerry Casali performed with Luann, and they sang, Don't You Want My Baby, in front of Julia Child, who was there. And we holding it. We were holding, holding it. They were with mass. And what was this Human League song? Um, don't You Want Me Baby. Don't You Want Me Baby. Now it's Don't You Want My Baby. And then Martin von Halserberg, who was our super close friend, who's married to Bette Midler now, he, was, he showed up in underwear singing an English song. I mean... Rick Elfman, who did uh, oh, wow. the film The Forbidden Zone, who had a band called the Oingo Boingos, yeah. he showed up as an Irish, I, I, Scottish, with uh, bagpipes. Like a drum and fife? <laughs> yeah, kind of. and then we had you know Jamaica. I mean, it was insane. <laughs> I love in, this. Insane. But fun, and all the foodies were there, Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters and all the artists, uh, Robert Graham, Billy Al Bankston, and his parents invited 400 people. Oh, my God. And usually they don't show up. Believe me, these people all shoot up. And they, (laughs) we got so many weird clown shelf things that you put on the, you know, all these weird, the weird Yankee gifts that you get is just (laughs) crazy. So it was a blast. And then I, so then I went, decided. Did you at least have a photographer? Yes, but the photographer that was there got so drunk, he was doing, that's when they started doing videos. <laughs> and this artist, Roger Herman, was going out with this filmmaker named Tamara Davis, who went on to make some wonderful films and videos. And she consequently married one of the Beastie Boys. But she was gorgeous, and she was wearing a Rudy Gernreich dress that had holes in it on the side. And the filmmaker got so drunk that he forgot to film me and he was concentrating on her dancing. <laughs> so four hours of our video is of her dancing in this Rudy Kernreich dress. That's so funny. It's like, hi, I'm the bride, I'm the bride. And then all my friends wore their wedding dresses. All my friends. To your wedding? They all wore their wedding dresses too. Awesome. Who made that happen? I don't know. Somebody must have said, oh, that'll be a who oh, everybody know, like, show up. Shit, what are you doing? <laughs> but it was um, it was oh, very, very we fun. We need to redo wow. your, have a do-over of your I wedding, know, I, I know. How many years are you married? Uh, we were married in 84. So okay. how many years? You can do the math. Wow. You've been married for 36 years. Yes, yeah. but we've been together for like over 40. Wow, that's and amazing. My husband and I just had our 42nd wedding anniversary. Oh, wow, congratulations. Oh, you yeah, started young. Yeah, yeah I was, I I was uh, I just turned 20 when we got married. Up at that house, you have a vineyard now. Yes. When did that happen? That happened when, uh, in 92, I believe, there were no vineyards in Malibu, nothing. That, and Michael got this crazy idea, since we had this slope lawn and we had to treat it all the time because of four, you know, fires, he said, let's just make a vineyard. And one day I came home from working and he had this vineyard, he had tore out everything and there were rats swarming around and he goes, I've started a vineyard. And could have killed him. So we started <laughs> planting these grapes. Life. <laughs> oh my God. We'll get oh him in God. here. And then 
he starts this vineyard. I'm now enrolled at UCLA in their master's program in fine art department because I realized that I'm really not an illustrator. I was doing illustrations for Playgirl and every menu in town and everything. But I really was always just a fine artist. I just was too stubborn, too stubborn. I need to do my own path. So I was at UCLA getting my master's and then I was pregnant there. And we had, yes, we started growing grapes then. Yeah. And you and were sort wine. of the first new... Like the first modern vineyard. We were the first vineyard in Malibu, really. There were some other maybe little ones, but no. And now there are so many vineyards and big, you know, you have big ones that are... What is the process of starting a vineyard? Well, you you clone um, grapes from other... other vineyards, if you, I mean, or other, yeah, from other stocks, if you know what you want to grow. So you start, you get the grapes, you plant them, isn't it? I've been told yeah, that it takes grow, a number of years. It does. It takes seven years. Before you have grapes that you can make into You one. graft on. You start with the grape stock and then you graft on other kinds of stock that you want. So we were trying everything. When we uh, burned down in 1993, our house burned down, we were growing in different areas and our neighbor gave us some of his property to plant too. So we were trying Merlot. Chardonnay. We were trying all different kinds of things. And then it burnt down? Then our house burned down in 93. And all the vineyard did not burn down, but it all got charred and it never really came back. So then we decided to regraft, do it again. And we started over with Pinot Noir because we realized that Pinot Noir was the best grape because you need, it's so weird with grapes, you need them to struggle. And that's like with the drip system that we have, it kind of goes in the middle of the, you've got the, the vines coming together and you have to have the vines just struggle, 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 struggle to get to that water, to get, you know, to give the complexity of the grape. What's really weird about having a vineyard is that, you know, of course, none of these are, all these are non-for-profit, but we love it. We sell it in the restaurants. I mean, right. it's a great it's vineyard, whatever. It's such a good wine, too. Yeah, I, the Pinot it's my Noirs. favorite wine. Oh, I love thank it. you. Thank I you. It's it. a really, is that this is the first year that we don't have grapes. And I think it's the climate has been so crazy. It's it's kind of scary because like this is. Like in no grapes? I mean, so few, so few. It And I've never seen this ever, wow. ever, ever. Because, you know, it was cold this winter, then hot, then cold, and then such, I mean, it just, it was such a wacky year that it's, uh, it's it's quite disturbing. And other people that are, I talk to, you know, that deal with plants, whatever they say, it's been very crazy. You're right what you say. There are vineyards everywhere in Malibu now. No, there are. It's a whole industry. 30 years. Yes. And um, I moved to where I am now about six years ago, but prior to that, I lived north. And there's vineyards everywhere. Like mm-hmm. you go drive around. There's this wine, that wine, this it's wine. It's a good. Fi- it's a good fire break. It is. So uh, speaking of fire, I've read when you talk about the work that you do that that the burning down of the house and the vineyard and everything influenced where you went next with your art. And I'd love to hear you talk about your art. Uh, sure. When I was at UCLA, I was then you had to be a tough male painter. You know, you had to show that you were not feminine. You know, you started to read about the Lee Krasners, who were Jackson Pollock's wife, or they all had to be hard drinking, hard ass painters, no children, nothing. So here I was, obviously, I've always been quite feminine, but I was going to show the world that I was a tough ass. So I was painting, you know, tough expressionistic paintings, even though I was having to be as pregnant as could be. And I'm like, no. And, the do- and Chris Burden and the other artists would say, ew, what do you have growing there? I go, nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I don't have anything there. Can't you see I'm a tough ass painter? So I was really trying to, you know, just show my muscle then. But I, I knew there was another side to me. And 
And interestingly enough, at that point in 93, our house burned down. I lost my studio. But prior to that, we were also living in New York because we opened up a restaurant in New York. And when my kids were babies, we were in New York. But we decided to come back to L.A. because my son needed some medical treatment. And when our house burned down and we lost everything, but fortunately... We were so lucky. Our insurance paid for us to live in the colony, Malibu Colony. So we had the best three years of our lives. <laughs> we had a ball. We didn't give a shit. We had nothing. It was fabulous. <laughs> it was a great place to raise kids. I mean, till this day, that was like... You must have lost a lot of treasures in the fire. We now. lost everything, but it was okay. We were bankrupt. We were like... You know, one thing about moving around so much is that, you know, stuff is just stuff. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. Of course, it's nice to have nice stuff, but I don't want to be this age again and lose everything and fight the insurance, which was a nightmare. But at that point, you know, we were young and it was like, you know, we can do this. We can do this. They say in 93, that was the Santa Ana winds. And they say it was two firefighters who were trying to be show that they were wonderful fighters. And they started a fire to pretend like they could get it out. And it burned the day after Halloween. I think 150 houses. I remember that. And, and you obviously were one of them. And every house in, you know, La Costa, everywhere, they all burned down. It's funny enough, though, like there's some wooden houses that did not burn. It's just by chance where that fire goes, mm-hmm. what sparks it. So, uh, yeah, the day after the fire, everybody that, you know, was around Melbourne, we're all at the Gap, like with nothing. No no clothes, nothing. We were just like, you know, buying some T-shirts. and. The so worst part is to lose your mementos, though. Those are the things that, the yeah. photos, that kind of stuff. That would yeah, be- I mean, listen. It, it is, is what it is. Right. It's, you know, how can how can I compare to the disasters that go on in oh, the world no, that right? are they they can never recover a life. I no. mean, never. Yeah. No. You're so, absolutely right. Good attitude. <sighs> what else do you it's do? It's your trademark for me. You have you have such sort of spiritual optimism about you and such beautiful Thank you, you Leanne. Know. You're one to talk. Oh my god. I lost my studio. I I was just kind of working in a little outhouse there with everybody around in a little house. And I started to work in watercolor on paper because I couldn't work in oils, too toxic. And at that point, it was interesting. The men, there were men artists like Mike Kelly and um, other, trying to think of other names that come up, but most profoundly Mike Kelly, who was this wonderful kind of punk guy, but he started sewing. And these other men who were appeared so masculine, started to show their feminine side in their work. And it came a time when all of a sudden, you know what? I can If they can show a feminine side, why can't I show a feminine side? And at that point, works on paper were considered a serious medium. They were no longer considered the uh, model to do move on to a larger painting. So I started working in watercolor and paper and just doing a ton and working and working and trying to figure out you know, my how to manipulate this medium because watercolor is such a effusive medium. It's the water just goes everywhere and trying to find your way. And at that point, too, my kids were growing up and I was seeing them mutate and watching my parents (laughs) mutate and I was watching myself mutate. And I always wanted to create a figure that represented an essence, a being, not necessarily staring at somebody and creating an academic portrait of them, but this kind of evolving shape, you know, the shapeshifter genderlessness, because I never really saw people as male, female. I just saw them as these beings. Almost like when I think about one of my favorite artists is Giacometti. And his work is just really these soulful gobs, but they create an essence. They create a spirit. And it's kind of like searching for this itch, you know, this searching for this mosquito that you just kind of like you're obsessed. You're just going after that. 
And so I started to slowly show my work to some people. And they said, you know, this is pretty hip. You know, this kind of works. And I started getting shown in galleries. And um, before that, I was working, making, before I was doing the figures, I was doing cell forms. Because since my son was going through so many surgeries, and I was looking at x-rays, and it was kind of like creating a screenplay of mapping of different images that were flowing through. So then I started to, um, you know, really show my work around yeah, a and, lot with that work. And you really, to, to put a fine point on it for people who haven't seen your work, you're working wet on wet, which is right. exceptionally out of control. It is. But I like that process because our lives are so goddamn out of control. And somehow, <laughs> you know, working that way, it kind of just puts it all there. And trying to, you know, we're all trying to control that goddamn thing that we cannot control. And yeah. it's it's like you're just fighting, you're fighting that, you know. But then once you get it, boy, it feels great. Yeah. and It feels so is, great. Your work is just so, it has such a beauty and innocence and, and complexity. And I look thank at it you. and I don't understand how you do what you do. It looks impossible. Oh, thank and you. You're, you're definitely collaborating and co-creating on, mm. on a different level. I, I really appreciate that. It's funny because I've been fighting in the past. Year trying to work in other materials because I want to do. We kind of do things in different decades of where we are, and then now that I'm at, at this older, de- I want to figure out. <laughs> so I've been fighting with oil and fighting with other materials to try to create. I wish I could be a product artist. I wish, you know, so many of my friends that are so successful, they come up with an idea because now there are so many artists in the world. And yeah. there's with the art fairs, people have to produce like crazy. You have to be like a treadmill of trying to make, and the people that have this way of assistance and you know and we all have our different ways of working not one's better than the other but one is better because if you can make a product and boy sell it and make a lot of money how great is that what do you mean when you say a product artist what is that and it's not really fair for me to say that because i would not think that that's how they view themselves it's that they're able to conceive something before they can conceive something before see how it's going to look before and then have it fabricated or fabricated away or else it's almost or, or else they make something that's like paint by number. They're able to draw it out perfectly and then they know they can already give me an conceive. example. Oh god, I don't want to get anybody. I can in give trouble. I can give an example. Well, like Jeff Coons. He oh, I gets see. a little maquette and he has people fabricate it to an amazing, an amazing thing. So he'll but make it's already, a balloon to one of his puppies. Yes, but he's I gotta figure it out and then it's you know Repeatable. blown up. It's 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 already it's shown before. You already know what it's going to be. I see. He pushes it through. I've but never it's, heard that no. expression before. Thank you. And then I'm really more of a process artist mm-hmm. that I like to find my way through the process. But you make a piece. Yeah, but it, it, it is what it is. I think Instagram has kind of done that with lots of the arts. I think music, you know, it's all been kind of fashion. It's all been kind of, except for I have to say the people that are activist artists who I think like the minority voices that are being shown today that are doing such profound, gorgeous, gorgeous work. So what's next for you? What are you thinking about? I've been working at it this year. It has been a real, because I did a show in New York this winter, and I just kind of realized I was at a crossroads and what it's going to be this next. So I've been, you know, working with different mediums, working, and then, of course, with the Timber of the Times. I mean, we are all affected, and it kind of feels like we're pre-World War II. I mean, it's almost like the Blitz. So I almost want to do Bacchanal or something. I'm trying to figure. It feels like we're like I want to go back to my German expressionistic roots because I feel like we're in this funny 
I see things that are just, mm-hmm. it feels at a different time. It's, Everything's for grabs right now. Everything, everything is like turned around. The truth. It's that, like cabaret almost the, right no now. There's no agreement on the truth right now. No. So it's like, you might as well just laugh at it. I mean, it's a, the whole thing is so absurd. So I think I'm almost trying to find this absurd way of what this is that we're at right now. Is there anything that you haven't done that you'd like to do? I'd like to travel more for sure. I'd like to have time and money to get a neck lift that'll never get done. <laughs> you don't need a neck lift. What are you talking about? I shouldn't say that. I would. I, what I would really like to do is I would, and I don't think I'll, I. What I really do worries me a lot is I wish I could buy houses for my kids. And I feel like today I don't know how I could do that. That was one thing I, I really that would be a goal for me because I feel like even though it's they're young and I mean they're twenty eight thirty I I don't know today in our. The way the economy is and the market is how these kids are going to afford their own homes. It's impossible as a person who lives in the finance business, which is my day job. Yes. um, We deal with this a lot. And, um, you know, most of us are lucky enough to have our children live near us. You know, it's when you live in California, you grew up in California, leaving California is rare. It's nice here. People want to be here. But trying to buy a house, a starter house is, you know, a million dollars. I know. And that is something that I would really... I hope to be – that's really truly my – that's my goal is to leave them, you know, to do that for my kids. That's a, a for fantastic that. goal. Yeah. And to be – when you said you wanted to travel, where would you like to go? Well, I'm going to Tanzania with my um, daughter. I'd like to certain places and then maybe I'll just go through, you know, virtual reality and pretend like I'm there. <laughs> I know, a lot right? Of places it's a lot all, cheaper. <laughs> and then a lot of things – I really just want to be in my studio and work. I feel like I want to work more than ever. Yeah. And your studio is at your house. It is. And then, but you know, I, I work a couple months in New York too, a year, but I work out of a little apartment there. I find New York is more challenging to concentrate because there's so much at you, you know, and just keep everybody healthy. That's really, yeah. Yeah. that's our goals. Yeah. And your it's studio the, is amazing. It overlooks it the Pacific Ocean. It's filled with your beautiful works. Oh, thank you. Even though I do keep the blinds down, you get into, you, do. you know, you don't look outside. But yes, I'm, and I'm you very have your fortunate. Little companion, your dog. <laughs> my other little chihuahua mutt he's like got, yeah totally on the spectrum but he's mine he's so great Thank what you. would you tell a young artist today that's starting out i think it's complicated because i know my son's girlfriend's a young artist she's successful she's a brilliant girl i think for a lot of these young artists they start off with big careers right away because it's they're almost considered a commodity and they go up up in the ranks, and then they're dropped. And I think it's very difficult because so many, they're like considered like racehorses. So I think you've got to, it's hard to experiment and to find your voice and not get discouraged. And the ones who are, and I've heard this from one, one other artist told me this, and I thought it was such good advice, the ones that are riding that wave to go put it in real estate. Take advantage of that money. Go buy yourself something because it's up and down. I have certain friends of mine who's, if I can just give you one example, because I know we're getting short on time. No, no, we're fine. One of my artists, when I uh, teachers when I was at school was a man named Lee Mulliken, gorgeous artist. He was in his 80s. Nobody was taking his class. He was kind of out of popularity. At that point, his son, Matt Mulliken, was the successful new young kid on the block doing, you know, taking iconic forms. It was his time. Lee Mulliken, again, gorgeous artist, did, was very successful in his 60s, very well recognized In the 80s, nobody cared about his work. He passed away. 15 years later, he was rediscovered. His work went like crazy. 
His wife, who I always knew, who I love, a gorgeous Latin muse, and always talked to her. She never talked about her art. I never knew she was an artist. She's 97 years old. All of a sudden, it's her time. She's in the Hammer Museum. She is being bought like crazy. Lee is kind of, you know, he's in the world. Matt is kind of stagnant. It's just, it's all so, it's wherever the zeitgeist is. It's wherever, you know, you are at the market. I had a funny experience yesterday. I take Pilates on Little Santa Monica Boulevard, and there's a gallery there, the Carl Hutter Gallery. And the guy who owns that gallery donated, uh, one of his artists is a guy named Peter Rizisbos, and he donated a piece of art to a charity auction uh, from my charity. And I was walking down the street yesterday, and I happened to run into him. And he had taken out Peter's work and was putting in a new uh, show. He said, oh, how are you? And we started talking about his collection. He says, you know, I never showed this to anybody, but let me show you some of my stuff. And he takes me into this room. And in the room, he had tons of artists that were 60s artists from the 60s. He's about... He's probably about 65, maybe 66. The whole room from top to bottom was filled with this iconic 60s art. And I was, cool. it was fantastic stuff. Yeah. Like just awesome. It was such a great, un, completely unexpected experience to walk in and be just overwhelmed with it. I love art. Yeah, I, we love junkie. it too. So as you look forward in your life, what's next for you? What are you going to do besides the travel, hoping to get the I really want to do good work. I really want to do do good, good work. I mean, that's really my goal. And to keep, you know, these businesses going somehow or another, because it's the whole, you know, the business model keeps changing and to keep everybody, I mean, I know I keep saying this, but really just to keep enjoying it all. My God, how lucky. Does your husband still love running the restaurant? He loves being a host. He loves it. Of course, the, you know, the business part behind it, that's always, that, that's always complicated. You know, I think everybody will always say behind the curtain, it's always complicated. But yes, he loves to eat. He can eat like nobody's business. He loves to cook. And um, he can start in New York. He starts talking breakfast at 730. He finishes talking at 10, 11 o'clock at night. He loves, loves talking. <laughs> He's a master. He, he makes loves everybody him. feel like they're the only person. But it's sincere. He really does I know. love it. it. He is authentically that that guy. And yeah. A real force. And I have to say, you know, when you talk about I want to keep working, I have observed your work ethic, too. You are a chop wood, haul water painter. (laughs) You paint a lot. I paint all day, every day. You have to. It's your practice. Otherwise, you it's like exercise. I go in my studio every day at 830 and I finish at five, six o'clock. I mean, you listen to music while you're painting? I listen to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, for my that. new fave. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that. Oh, it was so wonderful. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Your story. You are just a magnificent person. You have such nice energy. It yeah. has oh. just been a joy to meet you, really. You guys ask good questions. Oh. Thanks. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you for coming. Our next guest will be entertainment media executive Michael Casson, the founder, chairman, and CEO of MediaLink, a leading global strategic advisory firm. Described as the ultimate power broker, Michael is a trusted advisor to media moguls, Hollywood visionaries, technology pioneers, advertising heads, and Fortune 100 chief marketing officers. His prowess earned him top industry lists, including Adweek's Power 100, Variety's Index of the Most Influential Business 
business leaders shaping the global entertainment industry, AdAge's top 100 media executives in America, and the Silicon Beach 25 list of the most powerful digital players in Los Angeles. Michael shares his self-proclaimed superpowers, his ability to solve complex business problems and challenges, to see and seize opportunities across complementary industries. He'll discuss his thoughts on the changing landscape and share how MediaLink is navigating the age of digital disruption across all areas of media and technology. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with media strategist Michael Casson on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.